This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. When I talked with clarinetist Anthony McGill recently, he told me he can't remember the first time he performed the Mozart clarinet quintet. But he does remember the first journeys that he has with brand new works. And that's the case for a brand new recording with Pacifica Quartet. It features four works by living composers and three of them are world premieres. The recording is American Stories. And that's what you're going to hear about this week on new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. Anthony, let's start off by having you talk a little bit about your relationship with the Pacifica Quartet. I know that it's kind of evolved over the years and that you perform together on a regular basis. How did it begin and how has it evolved? Yeah, well, we've been working together for quite a few years now. And, um, you know, I spent, I've spent so much of my career playing chamber music. So that part of my career, starting off, like learning all of the great clarinet quintets um, and getting a chance and the opportunity to first play with the Pacific Quartet is something I'm really grateful for. You know, over the years, we just developed a, a great relationship. We would kind of meet in different parts of the country and, and perform uh, some of the standards. We even did a recording, of course, years ago of the Mozart and Brahms quintets. And we became fast friends and musical um, colleagues. And it's been one of the great relationships, musical relationships of my life. Um, to be able to perform with them. So that's kind of how it started. We just kind of continued performing together, uh, continued recording together, fortunately, and um, meeting up, you know, sometimes some years every few months to perform together. So it's a really special relationship. There is a powerful connection between the strings of the quartet and your clarinet, Anthony. What is that connection? Why does it work so well together, those textures and those sounds? And Mark, you can feel free to jump in as well. Well, I mean, I think some of it for me is that the um, the sound of the clarinet can blend with so many of the different instruments um, separately. So, for instance, there's so much great writing for clarinet and viola in particular. There's so much, so many great pieces for clarinet and cello. So right there you have two of the like the deeper, richer instruments of the of the quartet sound. That's half the group. And of course there are of course trios for clarinet and violin, but it, especially the the viola and cello sounds um, really blend well um, with the instrument. And it also can double as a kind of a high voice sound as well. The clarinet also known as the soprano clarinet in some circles. So, um, so there's so many great chamber music pieces that are written for the protagonists being clarinet and violin, like the Schubert octet I'm thinking of, or the Beethoven septet, for instance, I'm thinking of as well, um, where it can double as a high instrument vocal line, where it's the solo line, but also have the richness of a bass instrument or a middle voice alto instrument. Um, and that's that's what gives it its flexibility within the ensemble of a quartet. So it can have different roles within a piece that's written for it. 
Yeah, there are a lot of pieces. Mark, that sounds like that would make you very happy, what he just said, since you're the violist in the quartet. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially, you know, we're in- incredibly indebted to the clarinet because we do borrow some repertoire from from that instrument, uh, not just the Brahms sonatas, but uh, many other composers arranged or, you know, allowed their music to be played on viola. Max Rager. Um, there are a bunch of pieces also that just have the viola and the clarinet either as a duo or a trio. There's course, a wonderful Mozart trio and Schumann and Cortag and Francais, and there's a wonderful duo by Rebecca Clark. And so I think you know, a lot of composers have seen you know, the commonalities between these two instruments, not just the register, but the, with the timbre and, and you know, the role in music. And then, of course, we have such great music for quartet and, and quintet and sextet and you know, octet, as Anthony says, that also involves the viola. But um, I, you know, I think a lot of instrumentalists like to say that their instrument you know, is the closest to the human voice, let's say. And, and I think it's true for clarinet and for viola and for cello and for violin and for, you know, many of them. The recording American Stories was made in 2021 and it wasn't released right away. Why is that? Well, uh, as far as I know, <laughs> it takes some time to release these things, to edit them. There's some timing issues with um, recording companies and the schedules that they're on in order to get a recording out to the public. So between um, the recording project, the editing, and where it falls in the schedule that the, um, the record label needs to put it out, that's what, that's what has to work out, you know, because they have so many recordings coming at once that they have to get the ones that are kind of on the, on the burner ready to go out sooner than, than other ones that are, have started the project later. Including one of yours, right, Anthony? Didn't you have a, a recording come out just recently? Yeah, exactly. I think the, the Brahms album with Gloria, the recital, um, recital album, that came out maybe before this one. And so, there were, yeah, there were lots of things going on. One should on. run out and buy that album. Yeah, I was just thinking, I didn't know if it was intentional, like you were kind of holding on to it for any reason. I was just curious if there was a reason that you guys had wanted. This recording really demonstrates your commitment to living composers and new repertoire. And that's something that both the quartet and you, Anthony, are committed to. Can you talk a little bit more about that and why that's so important to you? Oh, sure. I I could just step in. I think it's just important as you kind of value just music and creativity in general to um, always try to find new voices and and new creators to perform, Uh, not even just for the spice of to keep everything lively and spicy in your own musical journey, but also for the future of classical music and music in general. Um, it's always such a pleasure to be able to play music by composers that are alive and and thriving and be able to present those works to the world. So that's why it's so important to me um, as a performing artist. Did you have the opportunity to work directly with these composers on this recording or for this recording? Yeah, actually, not as much as I would have liked, you know, frankly. And um, fortunately, I have a great relationship with all of them. And, you know, they were happy to hear that we were doing it. But, you know, with with kind of the back end of the, well, the pandemic is still with us. But, um, you know, we weren't able to, like, meet in person with um, the composers as we were doing it. Some of the pieces we had, we had talked with the uh, different composers about and 
with different ones like Daniel Poor, I'd performed that piece before, and with James Lee III, I'd also worked on that piece, and he gave feedback about it. Um, even with Valerie's piece, I'd worked on it before with the and, and performed it with the Harlem Quartet before recording it for this particular album, and they had recorded it for her and with her. So there were some relationships there where I was able to interpret it, and we were able to find our way with it um, by ourselves. So that was nice. We were sending clips to the composers too, uh, as we were, you know, rehearsing the music and recording. And I remember one late night phone call with James Lee, where we, you know, sort of turned on the phone and were playing different things for him to get his, you know, to get his feedback. And I remember sending Ben Shirley a little clip during the recording session. And then, of course, once we recorded the works, um, you know, we sent them to the composers so that they could offer their feedback on on different takes or on on you know balance or. You know, things like this. Can you give me an example, Mark, of where you had some questions that you wanted more input on? I distinctly remember uh, a passage in the James Lee where the strings would end in a very loud, ringing note. And then immediately afterwards, he wanted us to play very softly and put the mute on. And of course, we thought both of those colors were really wonderful, but when we had performed it, we thought that, you know, taking that pause to put the mutes on, it sort of creates a little bit of noise and there's a distraction and, and it makes some sound in this silence, which, you know, otherwise could just hang there. And, you know, we asked him, we said, you know, James, do you think, it, you know, it, do you think it would be okay if we just kind of play with a very soft and covered sound right after that moment instead of putting the mutes on? Because, you know, we feel like it's going to destroy the mood a little bit. It's going to look a little, you know, like we're working. You're going to hear the clicking of the, you know, all this stuff. And it, and he said, sure, that's a you know that's a good idea. And then I remember that for the record, we actually used the mutes because you know they can take out any noise you know in that you know in that moment in between. So this way you know we got the, the exact kind of shading and color that he had in mind. But in concert, we think it's truer to his sound actually not to do that, but to just you know if we play over the fingerboard, it has a more you know hushed, distant, you know, fluty kind of sound. American stories is about the idea of storytelling and identity and what it means to be an American. And you're exploring that from different perspectives. Anthony, this theme actually came out of pieces that you were already working on, including that quintet by James Lee. Can you talk a little bit about what we hear in those four movements and what inspired you about this work? Yeah, uh, specifically about that work, always when I'm discovering a new piece, especially if I'm going to record it, I have to enjoy playing it. So that's like number one. It has to be a piece that I really, um, that connects with me. And the sound of it and the performance of it, it was one that um, really resonated with me. Some of that has to do with just the rhythmic vitality of, of each movement, especially that first movement. Um, it has to do with the slow reflective um, sound of, of the slow movement.
and it's just the energy of the performance of the piece. But I think, more importantly, the reason why we started to think about the story behind the music, which can really help to inform a piece and a performance, is, and I've been thinking a lot about this, of course, my entire life as a musician, as a Black musician especially, but um, thinking about how we can have so many different types of, of cultures and so many different um, musicians from different places come together and play music together beautifully, but also um, uh, get the chance and opportunity to, to work on them and to develop them in a way that brings in our own identities into that performance. And with James's piece in particular, with his um, discussion with, with us and with me um, about um, where his inspiration for this piece came from, which was seeing pictures of, of what looked like Native Americans or indigenous peoples, but also um, that there was a blending because a lot of black Americans um, can trace some of their roots to indigenous populations as well in America. And what does that mean about, about identities and how they can be not just even shifted but also recognized by the state or not. And like this, this concept of what it means to be American uh, wrapped up in where your, your, your history is from, your heritage is from, is something that I'm very interested in, um, especially over the last few years. I've been thinking a lot about that, what that means to me as a musician. So it just, it just tied in there with some of the things I've been thinking about personally with um, my role as a musician in the world. Did it inspire you in any way to maybe dig further into your own heritage? It has, actually, but I haven't done the genetic test. You know, my parents have, though, you know, and I've always, I mean, my history has been, my story and my family's story has been something that I've always been so proud of because my parents have been um, so proud of. It's part of, like, their story of of creating a legacy in a, in a place, in a country where... Um, there were so many struggles in our in our family to get where we are today. And so, um, you know, they instilled in me a sense of pride about where they came from um, and where our family came from. So are you are you comfortable sharing any of those struggles? Maybe give us an oh. example? Yeah, um, one of them is, is from my dad. And, you know, a lot of black families can't actually trace their families to... Um, specific places in Africa, because I, speaking of identities being ripped apart, a lot of those names were changed. A lot of um, uh, families were separated. But um, just in what we call our legacy history, what is our American history, it starts with my dad in Mount Bayou, Mississippi, which is the first all-black chartered town in the United States. And um, this town is something that I grew up hearing about a lot because it was dirt roads and it was like, you know, very poor. But but we had so much, my dad had so much pride in it that he talked about Mount Bayou almost um, every time we would meet somebody new. He would tell a story about Mount Bayou and how he came from this place um, that was founded by uh, freed blacks in the in Mississippi. And then my mom's story is one of coming up in Chicago 
born and raised at the, um, and she uh, lived in the Robert Taylor homes, which were projects on the south side of Chicago to help um, poor black people like come up in the world. And, and, and her, her, her mom and her grandma uh, raised her and also raised me when I was a boy um, in addition. So it's that history that we're really proud of. They were both the um, first people in their families to go to college. And um, I'm so proud of the fact that they actually, before it was common, went into art. So they're both, they were both art teachers, and that's how they met. So I could go on and on and on about um, why that matters to me as a person, the pride in, in my parents and my family and how they raised my brother and I uh, to be where we are. But that's some of the story. This is the world premiere recording of Lee's Quintet. And then there are two other world premieres on this recording. Let's talk about them. The other one uh, is the very first piece, Richard Daniel Poor's Four Angels. Who would like to talk about this piece and the story behind it? I think Anthony's very well equipped to talk about this one. He's a real inspiration for this, huh? Yeah, so um, I've had a relationship with Richard Danupor for years because um, I went to uh, Curtis well, he, where he was teaching and then we met again when I was young um, at the Marlboro Music Festival when he was composer in residence there one summer. And he'd been talking about writing a different piece, a clarinet concerto for me. Um, he eventually did. He wrote a beautiful piece called From the Mountaintop um, based uh, loosely on... The life and times of Martin Luther King Jr., but also just of the sound of a of a of a preacher in a black church and a chorus and a lot of call and response in that work. But the thematic material based on Black American struggle and civil rights movement was something that he has been a champion of presenting through his musical voice for many years. And this particular piece. Um, which was dedicated to the four girls who were killed in the Birmingham bombing in 1963, is something that he he kind of thinks of it as a like pairing of the concerto with this particular work, as a dedication to the lives that have been lost um, for freedom in this country, and specifically for those four um, young girls who were killed in that particular place. And and I think, you know, telling stories is something that Richard has has been doing for years through his operas, like a lot of great living composers. Um, they tell stories, and it's kind of a song without words, I, I guess you could say, um, which is really special. So during the pandemic, I uh, premiered a performance of this piece with the Catalyst Quartet at the Met Museum of Art um, at one of the galleries there. and. And that was kind of a journey for me because I got to go and find a, a place in the museum when it was pretty much empty. People weren't really in the museum very much at this point and, and kind of meditate on this work. And then to get the opportunity to record it with the Pacificas was something that um, just worked perfectly for this, this concept of, of identities. This is the identity of Richard Daniel Poor. He always tells me his story. We all have the individual stories of growing up. He grew up in Florida, you know, as a um, Persian American. Um, but it always struck him during the, sh- the civil rights movement of how you can you can feel the plight of other people and be a part of a movement in that way. 
and then use your voice as a composer, as a creator, to sh share the voices, the stories of others that are also American, that um, you might have not gone through what they went through, but can um, lift up other people's voices. And so I think that's what what this means to me, but it also, that's what, um, you know, a lot of Daniel Poor's work um, does. It lifts up voices that you've never heard of, it lifts up stories that are tragic and sad and shows them to the world and says, here, look at that, examine that, hear this in dedication to that. And I think that's what art can do um, in a really, and music especially, in a really intense way. So I'm just really, really proud that we were able to put this on this on this album, and that CD Records um, allowed this this uh, album to to be created. describes the piece it's so evocative and I, I i can totally hear that in the music it's it's very very beautiful very haunting but it's also very comforting music in the end and you know like the way that anthony says it's you know lifting up people and you know giving them voice it it, it really does feel sort of soothing this you know in the end this music it's you know sort of assuages fears and you know it's a memory to these four girls and uh, i think it's you know sonically very very um, rich and beautiful and um, it's a balm I think this piece yeah I, I would say that that's something important to say is that music has always been that for so many different societies so many different cultures and and within struggle music has been a way to um, to give hope in the midst of despair. Always, music has always done that. And I think that whether it's a new piece or an old piece or a spiritual or a gospel work, like, I mean, that's what, that's what the music is about and for so many different people. The Other World premiere is Ben Shirley's High Sierra Sonata, and this piece requires external as well as internal storytelling by the musicians, and this is actually something that I read in an interview you all did about it. So can one of you talk more about what that means? Mark, why don't you go for it? Okay, I, Anthony has a great uh, connection with Ben Shirley, but... Um... We've also become friends on Facebook and online, and we've had some Zoom chats around this time. And uh, so I'll let Anthony tell the story of, of how they met. But um, Ben's a really interesting, uh, kind, and wonderful man, I think. And this music really smiles, I find. I think he has a lot to be grateful for in his life. And I think you can hear that in this music. Um, it uh, it starts off, you know, this, this external sound you're talking about is us kind of breathing and waking up and, um, you know, s starting the day. To start the recording, when we were making the recording, we sort of had to breathe and, and I think Anthony put some air through his instrument and we were sort of stretching and, you know, just to have sort of a, 
a human side to the way that the that the music opens and opens very peacefully and and, and calmly you know, to, you know imagining the uh, high sierras and it's it's very evocative music and it's sort of it sort of uh, marches to the beat of its own drummer i could say this music it has such a unique voice and language um, it doesn't sort of fulfill your expectations i i think there's a bunch of corners in this music that sort of delight us uh, as performers and as listeners because uh you know he doesn't write music the way everyone else does, which is the mark of a very good composer, I think. Harmonically, there are things I don't expect. A bunch of blue notes where we think, is that the right note? And then we think, yeah, that's the right note. <laughs> uh, phrase lengths, things like this, pairings. He very often sort of jiggles the uh, time signatures so that, you know, all, all of a sudden you have an extra beat in a bar or you're missing a beat or two. Or the last time you had something, it was an A sharp, but now it's a, now it's a G natural, you know, or something like this. So it's, uh, it's always kind of uh, trying new things out, it seems. Uh, there's a spirit of playfulness and I think of, of appreciation in this piece and, and beauty, too. It's a very fun piece to play and also quirky and beautiful and peaceful. And uh, it's really like no other piece I've played before. Yeah, actually, Mark, I think uh, it's, 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 it's great to be on here with you because like we've never like, we've performed these pieces, but, but we haven't had like long conversations about this type of thing. But it, what you say reminds me of um, just with my, my pa parents and my family's visual art background. It, re it reminds me of like music that is like a collage. <laughs> like where there are different pieces from different parts of one's um, artist's life within the work and in, he does that with sound. You know, and you're like, I, where did that come from at that point? Is it placed just like that? It's not placed like um, with this sort of pattern that we're used to, A, B, A, what, whatever it is, or maybe there's a little bit of that, but it's slightly askew. In, in a really interesting way. And I think that brings out the unique characteristic of his composition. Um, I can talk a little bit about how I met Ben years ago. I was doing a residency with the LA Chamber Orchestra and uh, one of the opportunities was to play a chamber work by Ben. And I didn't, I didn't know his hash history or his background. And I played this piece called Brother Burn for clarinet, piano, and tenor, I believe. Um, and this piece was ferocious in its um, kind of anger and depth and passion. And I really loved it. And I heard some of his, his string quartet writing as well. And we performed at some place that Ben is very familiar with, the Midnight Mission, which is um, on Skid Row in, in, in LA, as they call it. And um, this is where people can go and, and try to get their lives back together. And Ben spent a couple years at this place. Um, and 
it was at the end of his time there that he started finding his um, love for music again. He was in a band, a rock band, and many years before, and kind of found the bottom. He found the bottom of his life. And music took him back to the top. Music and his love of um, running as well at the time um, brought him back to where he is now. And he went to music school while he was there and, and as a composition major and like discovered his this really special talent and voice. And um, so his is an, an especially American story as well that I'm so glad that we can share with people and um, they can they can hear his his work. Is there some place in this piece where we're hearing that side of his story, his own challenges? Yeah, I think there's a depth, um, and I don't know how to describe it, but there's a there's a pain in this soft melody that um, you hear maybe throughout the piece, but especially at the end. Clarinet melody that you have, that beautiful. Yes, yeah. exactly. And he repeats it over and over again. It's so simple, but there's I think there's a lot of struggle and depth in in this melody, a kind of sadness to it that you hear. Um, and you kind of hear the extremes of of uh, expression in some of the faster melodies that sound like they could be a part of some sort of jig or something like that. You know, he's telling his story from different perspectives throughout this piece, I think. Um, so that would be that would be the one that really hits for me is the repeated slow, um, low clarinet sound in that moment. I seem to remember that, you know, on the day of the recording session that Anthony just played that, you know, at the very end, you know, when we're not playing, we're just listening. And, and we were sort of stunned by how, you know, by the, the majesty and the beauty that he played it with. And I think that was it. I think you played it once. We all had the goosebumps and we said, that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> The final piece on this recording is Valerie Coleman's Shotgun Houses. And this is the story of Muhammad Ali, and it's the most dramatic story, the most dramatic piece on this recording, at least musically. What makes it so powerful from a musical standpoint? I think the language is is very um, to the point. You know, she doesn't... There are no wasted notes. Everything, everything counts. Uh, it's very uh, evocative, and uh, the characters are pretty clear. So when he's boxing, you can hear it. You can hear the bell of the of the boxing ring. 
You can hear the sparring. You can hear the the training going on. You know when he was preparing for the Olympics. You can hear the reflection on on the town he was from, on West Louisville.、Um, you know you can hear the sort of reflective qualities of it.、Um, you know this this great man, great great athlete. So there's a sort of reverence for him also in this, but also telling the story that the music breathes. You know just like.、Uh, Just like the story does, you know, breathes and evolves, and、uh, and then it's you know there's a lot of high energy at the end of it.、Um, it's very exciting. It's it's kind of visual too. At least I I can see things happening while we're playing. It's very exciting. It's it's a little bit at the edge of your seat. Yeah, I yeah I think it's uh it has a a lot of different. Areas in it, and it's kind of like there's a lot of storytelling in in the writing, of course, but also like the journey of the piece itself. It like takes you from point A to point B, so you kind of understand like without even it being written down that there's sort of a plot that that goes through the thing, even if you didn't know that this was about Muhammad Ali's life or his dedicated to him. That all great pieces, I think, have a beginning and a middle and an end, and and kind of have like a some sort of、um, narrative, whether it's visual in a kind of collage sort of way, or if it's actually more like here we are traveling to this other place and growing from here. What I love about music is that it can take you somewhere else. It can take you、um, out of where you are currently and transport you. And I think this music does that. You can kind of imagine at times that you're in a Maybe in a church in Louisville. Listening to someone preach or a choir or a gospel choir, and the soul of that sound and this slower stuff writing that has sounds of America, blues and and jazz and and everything. Have、uh, you know the more picturesque parts of the piece, which Mark was mentioning, just the the actual like fights, the actual like boxing. But the story goes、um, is much deeper. I I think it's important to interpret, at least I do, some of the writing as being Muhammad Ali's struggle in his own life as a very famous Black American who had such. Strength and confidence in order to survive, and I think there's the survival in the ring, but there's the survival,、uh, sometimes successfully, sometimes controversially, in the world as a powerful, strong, winning, confident black man. You can hear that kind of、uh, juxtaposition in that in that music. It's the the pride behind it, the strength behind it, and she does that with the way she plays with the rhythm and sets up different、um, kind of. Fighting ways within the sound of her voice. I thought it was really beautiful too. I thought it was beautiful how、um, the third movement is、uh, Grand Avenue, where where he grew up. Valerie Coleman said that she grew up just a few blocks away from there. And that that movement is an homage to him and his childhood home and his mother. She said that whenever 
she saw a picture with his mother. They're they're embracing or kissing or you know, you know there's an obvious love between them, and um, I thought that's a beautiful way to show that in music. What about the title? I've heard what Shotgun Houses means, but could you talk about why she chose to title the piece this way? I think it was um, to memorialize him and where he grew up and that neighborhood and and what came out of of West Louisville. And, you know, these kind of houses were what these long houses that you would sort of, like a railroad house, is that the right right way to describe it? And um, so I think it's an homage to sort of that era in the 40s and 50s, I imagine. Um, in the you know in that neighborhood and and seeing photos of that neighborhood and of where he grew up and yeah and, and where and she grew it. up and she, and where she grew up and if I'm not mistaken, um, you know she grew up in one of them, one of the shotgun houses. You know that style, yeah. So that that's her place. So it tells the story of her because it's her music, her voice really coming through, telling the story of another's uh, kind of voice. And I think it's it's a it's beautiful to be able to like play music that makes you think about other things too. Art is not always just to present something beautiful on the wall, for instance. Sometimes when, when you sit and you stare at a work of art in a museum, it makes you think about lots of different things. And that's, I mean, I think sometimes in music we shy away from that sort of concept that it can make you think about um, something more programmatic or visual or historical or um, philosophical. But that's what art does. That's what music can do as well. Um, and I think this music that's instrumental and yet um, operatic in its um, storytelling is how everything ties together on this particular album. What was most memorable for each of you as you were creating this project? The one thing I could think about, I mean, I have a lot of very happy memories about, uh, you know, coming up with this particular program, but but playing James Lee's quintet, which is, I think, the first thing that we did together, was during the pandemic when we were masked. We hadn't played with other people. I hadn't played concerts for a live audience yet. You know, it had been months and months. And we, uh, you know, we got our tests, we wore our masks, and we, uh, we went to this big barn here in Indiana, and we recorded this for a, a video so that people could watch and listen online. And it was just so special, this beautiful location in the middle of the woods, you know, beautiful sort of restored barn. Um, it was warm. We were with Anthony, so it was, you know, you know, making music with an old friend. There was this new piece, which we were premiering and then it had this evocative and and real visceral history to it and so um when i think about james's quintet i also think about my gratitude for being able to play with friends again and and to be able to make music again and um, i mean i you know i know we've all felt this but uh you know getting back on stage again was it was very powerful to look out and see an audience again after after a year or two of, of nothing and of course i always knew how important it was you know to have a great audience and that i wanted to share stories and characters and narratives but until i saw them again after i hadn't seen them for a year or two 
it all, you know, all the emotions came flooding back. It was a real visceral experience. And James's piece was the first sort of in that cycle um, that we recorded, you know, in isolation. And now we're playing it in public. So it's, it's, um, I'm very grateful. How about for you, Anthony? What's most memorable? I think, I think for me, it's about um, learning the pieces with the Pacificas that was, is most memorable about this project. You know, like being able to, I don't remember when the first time I, I played or performed the Mozart clarinet quintet, for instance. Uh, but there's something about the, the first journeys into works that um, are especially memorable for me. And in this particular case, especially with a quartet that I play a lot of the, the kind of quote unquote standard pieces with all the time, being able to see how we grew and the pieces grew with us as we worked on them and as we learned them, it gives me, um, it gave me such pleasure, especially as Mark said, especially during the pandemic, to be able to have something, uh, some collective goal to be able to play music seriously and better and that, that we don't necessarily know as well as some of the other things. And to be able to do that with them um, at that time for this recording is um, something I'll never forget. American Stories, a new recording featuring clarinetist Anthony McGill with the Pacifica Quartet. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer of new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Mocker.